Hello and welcome to episode four of the Funds Fan podcast, brought to you by Interactive Investor in partnership with Money Observer and Moneywise magazines. I'm Faith Glasgow, I'm the editor of Money Observer, and with me today I've got Kyle Caldwell, who's the deputy editor, and Tom Bailey, who's a staff writer. As usual, we'll start off looking at a couple of news items in the investment world, and we'll kick off with a widely followed report by the online broker Best Invest, which twice a year publishes a list of dog funds. It's known as Spot the Dog in the industry. Those funds are the ones that have consistently underperformed over the last three years. There are a massive 111 mutts in the doghouse this time around, and they've failed to deliver on almost £44 billion worth of investors' money. Kyle, who is in the doghouse at the moment? Just first off, just to uh, give listeners a bit of um, bit more explanation on this report. So it's been running for three decades, and it defines uh, an investment fund dog as a fund that has underperformed for three years in a row, and by more than 5% over five years. As you mentioned, Faith, there's a, there's a lot of money in these um, underperforming funds, and there's, there's quite a lot of them, over 100, as you say. Uh, you know, a lot of fund management groups don't like this report, and you can see why, because they want investors basically to not realise that they're in these funds that are continually failing to deliver. In terms of this latest report, Invesco was the most prominent fund house in the list. They had a total of 11 funds that appeared, and that was a combined value of $13.1 which represented um, nearly a third of all dog fund assets. And chiefly responsible was a couple of funds run by Mark Barnett. He worked with Neil Wolford, and Neil Wolford was his uh, mentor, and he, um, he does invest in a similar way. He doesn't invest in unlisted stocks, but he does have that same sort of value-orientated focus that Wolford has. So the funds that were in the doghouse were Invesco High Income, Invesco Income and Invesco UK Strategic Income, they're all run by Mark Barnett. Uh, my colleague Tom Bailey um, wrote, wrote the story up and he got a response from Invesco. A spokesperson basically said that the market has recently um, favoured companies with predictable earnings and revenues and um, this has been at odds with the valued focus nature of the fund. So it was kind of blaming the wider market for the underperformance. Quite interesting that other value funds don't seem to have been hit nearly as badly as the Invesco ones. It's been a really poor 12 years for value versus, say, growth. But um, there have been some value-focused funds that have served investors well over the last three years, which is what this um, performance um, examines. Obviously, there has been other ones that haven't performed as well. And elsewhere in the report, um, I mean, on a sector level, it was uh, North American funds that returned to the kennel. 30% of um, US equity funds were classified as dogs. I mean, as I'm sure you know, most investors are aware, the US market is a tough nut for fund managers to crack in. It's highly efficient. The JP Morgan US Equity Income Fund, that's, uh, that's got £3.8 billion worth of um, assets. That was, in fact, the sole reason why JP Morgan as a group were ranked in second place on a group level behind um, Invesco. In terms of just assets under management, is yes, it? Yes, yeah. exactly. But yeah, as I mentioned, it was um, Invesco that were, um, were number one, um, both for um, the assets and the number of funds that mm. were classed as dogs. Mm. Well, there's been more bad news for Invesco recently following a report by Morningstar, the data provider, which found that the fund was at the top of a list of fund outflows in 2019. So that is the amount of money that, that investors are withdrawing 
growing. Carla, I'm assuming that there was some correlation between the funds that investors have been dumping and the ones that made it into the kennels in the Best Invest report. Yeah, that's correct. Um, one of Mark Barnett's funds, Invesco High Income, did have quite a lot of outflows um, in 2019. That fund and another fund called Invesco Global Targeted Returns were both responsible for half of Invesco's um, outflows overall. So in Mark Barnett's case, it, it does show that investors obviously been on, on the ball and they've been looking at the performance, mm. they've not been happy with it. And some, some, exactly, some have been voting with their feet, but um, this doesn't always happen in fund management. There's a lot of investor inertia out there, mm. and that's why a lot of fund management groups don't like this spot the dog report. Mm. In terms of other fund management groups there, where the, the going was sort of tough last year, those, is, it, is this in the Morningstar report? Yeah, it? back to the Morningstar report. In terms of um, fund management groups that also struggled last year and in terms of outflows, Aberdeen Asset Management was in close second place to Invesco. It's sort of a total of uh, £8.2 billion worth of investor money head for the exit. And in third place was M&G. Obviously, these are, this, this report by Morningstar, it's always going to be more heavily skewed to the bigger fund management companies that have got more assets under management in the first place. Yeah. So, you know, if they have a bad year, they're going to be towards the top, you know, a more middling player or a more boutique fund management company. They're not ever going to be sort of named as, as, you know, having the most investor outflows in a year. Mm. Well, what about at the top end of the Morningstar table? Which fund houses actually saw a good volume of inflows into their funds? On well, a positive note. As it, as it may not come as much of a surprise to, to uh, listeners, I mean, it was BlackRock and Vanguard did dominate. Obviously, there's been a there's been a, a lot of money going into passive funds um, over the past decade, particularly over the past couple of years. Did the Morningstar data actually show whether it was going, whether the money, the inflows were going into passive or into active funds within those fund houses? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember them splitting up in that way. But um, they did mention that in terms of um, on like an individual fund level, the Vanguard FTSE UK All Share Index Trust, that saw inflows of £1.8 billion, So that received the most investor money for Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And for BlackRock, it was the ACES World X UK Equity Tracker. <laughs> which, um, love those ETFs. Which is um, obviously a very memorable name. That took in 1.6 billion. They're both passive funds tracking mm. you know the UK and, and the and the global stock markets. Were there any others that were up there that were not passives, not there because of their passive element? Royal London was in second place. It was wedged in between BlackRock and Vanguard that were first and third, respectively. It saw the second largest amount of inflows of £5.7 billion. One of the uh, big drivers was um, the Royal London Sustainable Leaders Fund, which attracted quite a lot of interest and, and money from investors. Uh, this invested in an in ESG manner um, as, a, as a long-term track record in the space, uh, one of the longest, in fact. And yes, that's just another sign that um, people are looking to you know, be invest their money in a more responsible manner. Clearly, though, overall, actively managed um, sales, the fund sales teams are, are finding it tough going at the moment, given the amount of money that's instead going into passive funds. And that's backed up, in fact, by new figures from the Investment Association, which revealed that 2019 was actually a record-breaking year for passive funds, fund sales, uh, with a total of 
more than £18 billion invested into passive funds, thrashing the previous record of, of almost £11 billion in 2017. And that's really in stark contrast to what was going on with the actively managed funds, where basically, uh, in, in net terms, £3.2 billion was withdrawn from active funds over, over 2019. So really, it's perhaps no surprise that there has been quite a big increase in fund management firms joining forces over the past couple of years. And in fact, the latest one actually happened today. This afternoon, we heard about Franklin Templeton, which is to acquire Leg Mason in the coming months. In 2019, Lion Trust take over Neptune. We've had Mighton merging with Premier. And a couple of days ago, we had Jupiter and Merion Global announcing that they are planning to get together. Tom, you've covered this announcement. So can you tell us what the what the key details are about the Jupiter and Merion tie-up? Uh, yeah, so as you said, uh, over the weekend, Jupiter Asset Management said they were going to acquire Merion Global. If Assuming this all goes through, that would mean that Jupiter would become the second largest fund house in the UK with £65 billion pounds under management. This is part of a growing trend of consolidation within the active fund management industry. And this has really got going since around 2009, when passive investment funds increasingly kind of took a share of the of the fund management market from active funds as investors became more and more disillusioned with the promises of active management. And so for active fund managers or active fund houses rather, this uh, consolidation is seen as a way of kind of trying to create economies of scale so they can cut their own costs and for some potentially cut management fees to better compete with passive funds, which have broadly made investors more fee sensitive. I suppose it's also likely to mean over time that the number of actively managed funds in the same space is is going to decrease because when a merger takes place, it's unlikely that two funds that are basically doing the same thing will continue running alongside each other. Hopefully, the more effective, more efficient and successful funds will um, will evolve and grow. Yeah, that seems likely. Obviously, when the one company takes over another, so right now Franklin, Tem- Franklin Templeton has said that uh, Leg Mason's funds will remain autonomous for now, but it, it does make sense that when there's crossover, they'll shut down funds. Mm-hmm. And as is often pointed out, there are too many underperforming funds. So it's potentially a good trend. Jupiter and Merion and Franklin Templeton and Leg Mason are not the only companies to announce a tie-up this this week alone. Yesterday saw Interactive Investor announce a tie-up with the Share Centre. The plan is to, to buy the Share Centre subject to regulatory approval. And it does seem like a natural fit, both companies operating on a flat fee basis in contrast to other pl- platforms in the market which operate on a percentage basis for their their fee structure. Anyway, we will now move on to a question from a listener. It's an an opportunity indeed for uh, listeners to submit their own fund-related questions. So if you've got anything you'd like to know more about or put to the panel here, please do so by emailing us at editorial at ii.co.uk. Please put in the subject line funds fan podcast and then we'll know what it's for. The question this week relates to a big theme over the past decade and one that is likely to continue as a big theme for the foreseeable future, and that is investment income. Our listener asks, I've seen some funds with yields of 6%, 7% or even higher. What's the catch and why do we never see these funds appear in most bought fund lists? Now, Tom, you've been looking at high-yielding funds for Money Observer recently. Can can you give us some insights into into these funds and the risks attached to them. 
Yeah, so this is a feature from the March edition of Money Observer, which will be out on the 27th of February. So the article has a table of the largest yielding funds available to UK investors and kind of walks through the, the sort of asset classes they're investing in and, and the major risks and potential downsides of, of these funds. As a reader mentioned, they're not often included in best buy lists, and largely there's a reason for that. So take the example of emerging market bond funds. These are well represented among the top yielding funds. Many of them yield somewhere between 6% to 9%. So on a surface level, fairly attractive. But the key thing to remember is these funds have a high yield because they have a high risk premium. So emerging market debt is high risk broadly because there's a high risk of default. Emerging market governments default more often. At the same time, there's poorer governance among companies and the public sector in emerging markets. And the legal treatment of investors is poorer. So all these risks, which the yields, the 9% yield on some funds reflects, and this risk-reward dynamic is kind of, you can see it all throughout the high-yielding funds. So even with emerging market bond funds, if you uh, opt for a local currency bond fund, it has a higher yield because there's a more of a, a risk there compared to hard currency bond funds, which are bonds, emerging market bonds, which are, the debt is denominated in dollars, which are broadly a lower risk, and so they carry a lower yield. Broadly, any investor looking at high-yielding funds should keep in mind that yields are high for a reason. And in emerging market debt, that can be because of potential default risk. Uh, and, and when it comes to, say, um, a high-yielding equity fund, that might be because the shares in that fund have been punished by the market, the price is down, and so that the yield's up. So broadly, between any of those things, that a high-yielding asset is usually one which the market doesn't trust for some reason. There is a type of fund, there's not very many of them, and they're usually denominated by words like maximizer or enhanced income. And they are designed slightly differently, aren't they? I mean, there the emphasis is on using derivatives or options to boost income, but at the expense, once again, there's a catch, the expense is that you are potentially sacrificing some capital. Yeah, these uh, yeah they go by the name of uh, income booster or income maximizer funds. Mm. Yeah, these were well represented on the list as you'd hope with their kind of objective. Um, yeah, as you said, they use call options, um, effectively swap the upside return on the equities for a uh, higher income. Mm. Um, there's a lot of disagreement uh, among kind of experts on whether this is good for investors to opt for or not. Some view it as kind of you work out in terms of your own individual investor profile. Do you want that income now? Are you prepared to sacrifice capital gains for it? There's no casual answer. But that would be very much why they're never going to appear in the top performers, isn't it, really? Because they've actually made the conscious decision to sacrifice capital yeah. growth. And, and so, the, yeah, I think probably the best see is something uh, for a very specific investor pursuing very specific goals. And so it's not something you'd want to kind of encourage someone who just wants... Uh, more of a broader profile to to opt for. Yes, yes, absolutely. There is clearly no such thing as a free lunch, basically. Finally, for this episode, I'm joined by Libby Godfrey, Junior Funds Analyst at Interactive Investor, and she's going to run through a few details about one of Interactive Investor's Super 60 funds. But firstly, Libby, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about gold following the news this week that Royal Mint is launching a physically backed exchange traded commodity or ETC. What are your thoughts on that announcement? Well, the fact that the Royal Mint, the government owned coin maker, is launching its gold product is a big deal and underlines the growing popularity of the assets. One of the easiest, cheapest and more liquid ways to invest in gold is through an exchange-traded commodity that tracks the price of the asset. We think ETCs are the best structure to gain exposure. 
For example, on II's Super 60 rated list, we have the iShares Physical Gold ETC, which is competitively priced with ongoing costs at only 0.19%. Okay, and more generally, what are your views on gold as an investment? The historic role of gold has been as a store of value during economic crises. When markets crash, investors tend to turn to gold, which pushes the price up. So with valuations in many areas of the market looking stretched at the moment, gold could be a good diversifier for investors' portfolios should equity and bond markets come under pressure. So would you say that it probably should form a small part of most investors' portfolios? Yes, for a diversification, I would suggest around 5-6% to of a portfolio could be allocated to gold. Okay, great. Thanks for that, Libby. We'll move on to the fund pick. What have you chosen? And what, what does it invest in? I have chosen the M&G Emerging Markets Bond Fund, which features in the II Super 60 list as a recommendation in the Adventurous Global Bonds category. The fund aims to deliver income and capital growth by investing in a broad portfolio of emerging market and frontier market bonds. It has the flexibility to invest in both government and corporate bonds, denominated in local currencies or in the US dollar. The manager, Claudia Kalich, will adjust her choice according to the macroeconomic backdrop. The portfolio includes approximately 130 bond issuers with a mix of geography, credit rating and duration. The top countries include Mexico, Russia, Brazil and Chile and the average credit rating is BB. Around 70% of the portfolio is invested in government bonds and 30% in corporate debt. And what, in your view, makes it a special fund? Well, Claudia Kalich has run the fund since December 2013 and is very knowledgeable about this complex asset class. She has more than 20 years of experience in emerging markets behind her and is also supported by a wide, well-resourced team of credit analysts at M&G. By holding a good spread and selecting individual bonds carefully, Claudia has achieved consistent outperformance of the benchmark and, importantly for income seekers, the fund pays an attractive yield of over 5%. So what sort of investors would you say it will particularly suit? This is a fixed income fund for someone who is looking for an alternative source of income but is willing to stomach some periods of volatility. Current low interest rates and uncertainty over prospects for bonds in the developed world have made it difficult for many investors to find a good yield. So it makes sense for investors to think about diversifying across different asset classes and regions to achieve their required income. Emerging market bonds can help generate an attractive yield and their relatively low correlation to other asset classes, including developed market bonds, should offer useful diversification for investors' portfolios. Thanks very much, Libby. That's great. That's all for this week. So many thanks to all our contributors and have a good week.